welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Before we kick things off, as always, a big heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is a mission-first technology company seeking to increase empathy in the world. Using the internet as a source of knowledge, inspiration, and communication, Quilt AI works on issues including climate change, gender equity, and health across the world. They're headquartered in Singapore with teams in New York, London, Zurich, Delhi. Quilt AI believes that the true value of the internet has yet to be seen. It has been used to index data, store photos, and conduct e-commerce, but the internet has not truly been used to understand the other. And this is the mission that Quilt AI is on, that of converting the internet into a space of understanding and appreciation. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the Do One Better podcast, Nirmala Rao, the Vice Chancellor of Asian University for Women in Bangladesh. It is the only all-female liberal arts university in the region, and it's uh, in part designed to address some of the inequalities that persist over there. They originally had backing from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Cherie Blair is their chancellor. And uh, we're going to have a wonderful conversation about the work they're doing in education, SDG 4, gender equality, SDG 5, and the tremendous work they're doing in improving the expected life outcomes of many young women in the region. So without further ado, a big heartfelt uh, welcome onto the Do One Better podcast, Nirmala. Thank you. Thank you very much. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about the Asian University for Women. Uh, the Asian University for Women was um, first established in 2008 with a specific mission to recruit young women with the promise and potential, regardless of their background, and to offer them high-quality education. As you rightly said, it's a liberal arts institution, the only one of its kind in the region, and it's very global in outlook. It's um, rooted in the context and aspirations of young people of Asia designed to address some of the inequalities endemic to the region. The idea for the university grew out of the World Bank and United Nations Task Force on Higher Education and Society. It was in 2000 that the task force published its findings in a report on higher education in developing countries, which actually concluded that these countries must improve the quality of the institutions of higher learning in order to compete successfully in an increasingly globalized, knowledge-based economy. Mm. And this inspired our founder, uh, Mr. Kamal Ahmed, to create this university. Wonderful, wonderful. So it was established in 2008. How many students do you have? Well, how many students did you start with? How many students do you have today? We started with 125 students, predominantly uh, Bangladeshi students enrolling for a one-year access program. Over the years, we've grown both in programs and student numbers, and today we have over 1,000 students Excellent. enrolled on various programs. What are the, so you, it's a liberal arts, I guess it's similar or based on, on a U.S. model, would you say? Uh, yes, it's largely adopted, it is a U.S.-style um, liberal arts model where students are allowed to study a whole range of subjects, 
while retaining the core aims of developing well-rounded individuals, the programs are designed to address um, a wide range of subjects for the students with a mastery of a range of transferable skills. Mm -hmm. um, our academic programs are quite unique. Uh, they are designed to foster students' resilience, leadership, enterprise, and responsibility, something that cuts across all liberal arts institutions, even in the U.S., but we give a greater emphasis to equipping students to make a positive contribution to society. Yeah. I was doing a little bit of research. This is a strong undercurrent of social responsibility that seems to be instilled within, irrespective of what sort of major you're focused on. In everything we do, practically. So for us, education is not just about getting a degree, but it's about making a difference for students in their own lives and of others, um, including their families and their communities. So in addition to academic excellence, AUW places emphasis on students participating in community service initiatives mm -hmm. um, or other forms of voluntary work to develop their skills and to become highly motivated and effective leaders and service-oriented citizens, which is part of our mission statement. And the service, the service ethic cuts across right from the time the recruitment takes place, uh, where we are assessing certain competencies, uh, which seeks to establish a young woman's desire and ability to make to be a positive agent of change in the community she comes from. And we look for certain qualities um, like, you know, empathy, courage, uh, determination, outrage, injustice, grit, if you like, and their motivation to be leaders of change in the future. Hmm. Now, the institution is based in Bangladesh. And you mentioned initially your students were mainly from Bangladesh. Uh, that's not necessarily the case today. Is that right? No. Uh, initially, it started off. Um, from Bangladesh and a couple of other countries, our charter requires us to take at least a minimum of 25% of students from Bangladesh. However, we have considerable flexibility and today we have students from 19 different countries, huh. um, including one from Senegal, Wonderful. most recently recruited two years ago. Wonderful. And what are, what are the, um, in order to get in to this university, um, you mentioned some of the things that you're looking for in students. What, what are the um, the fees? Are there scholarships available? How, how is one able to access this university, which I'm sure is probably oversubscribed in terms of demand? Yes, I mean it um, because the mission is to get recruit students, young women from very marginalized communities, and give them the opportunity to come forward and study. It started off predominantly as a scholarship university. Every student admitted was given a scholarship. And over the years, as the student numbers grew and students from all walks of life, even the wealthier students wanted to join AUW, so introduced uh, fees in recent years, which um, becomes necessary uh, you know, after a point. As student numbers grow, it becomes very difficult to um, provide for scholarship for every student. Mm -hmm. uh, scholarship uh, per student is about fifteen thousand mm -hmm. dollars, and that's largely because we have um, over half our faculty are recruited from the United States, Europe, New Zealand, Australia. So we get the very best 
faculty. And in order to be competitive, we need to maintain our competitiveness, both in terms of salaries and getting the right expertise. Mm-hmm. So today we have around 20% of our students paying fees. Okay. Um, and we hope going forward, our growth plan is to grow. So the, 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 the balance, the, um, the rest are on, on scholarship? Yeah, they're okay. on scholarship, mm-hmm. on full scholarship. Excellent. That, uh, that can't be that easy to do. Uh, when you're dealing with that volume of students in Bangladesh and you're dealing with high-quality education, tertiary education? It is. It's a huge challenge uh, because we students come, majority of our students come in the pre-collegiate programs, which are two-year access, pre-access and access program before they migrate to um, the undergraduate three-year program. So in all we need scholarships for a student to complete either a four-year study, one-year access plus three years undergraduate, or two-year access programs, depending on the point of entry, and a three-year. So um, investment ranges from between $60,000 to $75,000 for each student. And um, yes, in this highly competitive world where there's a limited pool out there, it is extremely difficult, but we've been very fortunate to have a network, an international network of supporters all around the world. So we mm-hmm. have support foundations. The main one is in Boston, okay. um, Support Foundation, where our, um, our founder is the CEO and the president of that foundation. And that foundation is the prime mover of um, funding. And um, but we are supported by a foundation in Japan and Hong Kong and Singapore, um, recently established in New York, Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And we have a very committed group of individuals who raise funding for us. And it must be helpful to have someone like Sherry Blair. Uh, of course. And yes, and Sherry Blair is... Um, must be wonderful having her. Absolutely. She's very passionate about girls' education. And she's extremely supportive of AUW. And we can just simply call on her every time we have an event, even as far as in Mexico, and she's prepared to go. So she's um, or she's present in most of our events, um, physically present in Hong Kong and Singapore, and comes regularly to um, Chittagong once a year to participate in our commencement ceremonies. So wonderful. Her support is absolutely um, wonderful. For wonderful. And tell me a little bit about addressing some of the inequalities that are that manifest themselves out there in um, in that part of the world. How is the university able to address these? Yes, I mean, in terms of what you rightly said, we do address both the SDG four and five goals. As you know, the Asian subcontinent presents a strikingly different context in many ways to the Western countries mm-hmm. um, that have been at the center of the dialogue on issues of equity and access. Um, Asian context, it is still a context where there persists gender inequalities. Women make less money than men. Women don't hold positions of power as much as men. Uh, or cultural or religious traditions inhibit young women from attending co-educational institutions. And the last factor is a very important one, not just in Bangladesh, but even in the surrounding Mm -hmm. Muslim communities particularly. Uh, Families are quite reluctant to send their daughters to co-educational institutions. Uh, 
So an institution like AUW has successfully given access to these women who would otherwise not have had the opportunity to access um, any form of higher education. And we sincerely believe without these, their hopes and aspirations will have remained a distant dream. Mm -hmm. And um, I think equally important is the fact that, um, you know, an institution like AUW, which is all female, does provide an environment very conducive to growing strong and assertive leaders and developing self-confidence, developing self-esteem among young women. Because in an Asian context, even now, whether it's India or Nepal or any of these countries, women still are not um, seen as someone who have an independent mind, are able to use their judgment. And uh, the traditions are, it's still a very traditional society. Mm-hmm. So young women coming to AUW, it's a very liberal arts, liberal institution, and, and they grow within five years. You know, they come as very different uh, young women, very shy, very um, coy, submissive. And by the end of their fifth year, you know, they're out there very assertive, mm. ready to take on the world. And where do you, so now you, you, that you, you, you describe a little bit that, that journey and that transformation from, from the first day to, to the day they graduate, where are they heading on after they finish at, uh, at university? Yes, so we have uh, more than 1,000 graduates worldwide. Um, majority, I would say about 75% of our graduates return to their home countries mm-hmm. um, and they want to solve the problems of their communities. That's why they have come to AEW and they say that, you know, uh, at the interviews and they really want to go back and, and um, help their families, their communities. I would say all are infused with the passion to create positive impact in the world. So a uh, majority of them join the um, NGOs or government sector They also join teaching institutions, Mm -hmm. policy think tanks, and some of them have even set up their own enterprises in Cambodia, in Nepal, and so on. But 25% of our graduates progress to higher education institutions worldwide to pursue their high studies. And uh, some of them are um, in top elite universities. You know, we have about um, 12, probably a dozen, yes, um, either studying in Oxford or have graduated from Oxford. We have five PhDs this year coming mm-hmm. out, two from Stanford, we are mm-hmm. proud to say. Great. And we, we have um, students in uh, Cambridge and University of London and Johns Hopkins. Name it and you have it. And in Seoul, we have an EVA Women's um, University. We have PhDs, students coming out of there. So, um, yes, I mean, but as I said, majority of them go, go back to their home countries and they work in the government and the geo sector. Sounds so, wonderful. Sounds wonderful. Uh, you, you asked about the service ethic. It cuts across, you know, right through. Today we have about 62 graduates working for NGOs and um, international organizations like UNHCR, World Food Program, UNICEF, in the Cox's Bazaar. Um, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, very close to the camps, the Rohingya camps. And they're working out there to address the crisis, uh, which, as you know, in the last two years has intensified. Sure. With over a million Rohingyas from Myanmar coming into Bangladesh. And so it seems it seems a wonderful journey in terms of these girls being able to set foot on campus, uh, having a year or two of access studies, then embark on the proper undergraduate degree, 
and many of them uh, going on to doing extremely fruitful things, both career-wise or even in, in further studies, master's degrees, postgraduate studies uh, at some amazing universities. Tell me a little bit about the, the other side of the equation. In other words, how do you recruit? How do you reach out to these marginalized communities and um, identify individuals who, who would be well-suited for this? Uh, it, it can't be that easy. Uh, you raised a very good uh, question, Alberto, because um, if we are recruiting from very marginalized communities, how do we recruit them for the basic competencies in English, for mm -hmm. example? So uh, we recruit for the traits that I mentioned earlier, which is about you know looking for certain qualities. Um, and that we do that through interviews and the questionnaires that we distribute to students. So the, the point, um, the, the starting point is we look for um, uh, NGOs in these regions mm -hmm. who are willing to collaborate with us, or we look for media who are willing to publicize and get as far as we can, you know, reach the last mile, if you like, mm -hmm. to uh, reach out to students, to schools. And, um, it's, uh, and we then send our teams out um, to these countries, perhaps not to the remote villages because the NGOs do the work for us or local volunteers help us reach out to the schools. And um, the examination is a very non-conventional one. Part of it is, um, of course, the traditional um, examination, which is essentially testing the basic competencies in English comprehension in essay writing, but if they are predominantly from the local tribes, they don't know English. So what we do is we then give a greater emphasis to interviewing them in their own language and we have a translation. And what we look, translator, what we look for is a young woman's ability to demonstrate uh, political awareness, if you like, mm -hmm. or community activism or entrepreneurial imagination. So we give them scenarios and we look for skills such as empathy or outrage at injustice or team working and, uh, you know, and, and motivation and resilience. And um, because we believe these are these attributes are much more important than getting a simple scores and, you know, in, in standard English or mathematics. So. They get recruited to, if their English competence is not um, as expected, then they come for the Pathways for Promise program, which is the first year of the pre-access program. It gives them intense English and uh, a bit of maths. And then they build on that in the second year of access program, which also gives them core competencies in computer science and um, other subjects like ethics and leadership and world civilizations. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's a little bit of a balancing act though, right? Even though you are trying to reach out to the most marginalized, by the very definition of most marginalized, some of those segments would not have the basic competencies that you would be looking for as a minimum entry. You, I, I'm My conjecture here, but I imagine you have to strike a little bit of a balance and yes, look at marginalized groups, but, but individuals who have had access to some sort of education uh, who, who do have some of the basic competencies so that they're able to succeed within the university environment. Absolutely. They have to have the uh, uh, 
the high secondary um, level of education, which is equivalent, I would say, of GCSEs, if you like, mm-hmm. um, at, at the age of 15 or 16. But the idea, uh, and we all know it, that in the Asian subcontinent, um, secondary education has not been as successful as one might expect because of poor infrastructure or poor lack of resources or um, not enough trained teachers. So even if they complete their secondary education, they're really not ready to uh, embark on an undergraduate program. And hence, we have these two years, um, you know, uh, pre-collegiate programs, which brings them up to speed to their undergraduate level. Mm-hmm. You will be interested to know that among the students we have, of course, the second largest are from recruited from the fragile countries, the war-affected areas of Afghanistan, Yemen, Palestine, um, and Syria. Mm-hmm. We, they form the second largest cohort next only to Bangladesh students. And the third largest um, are from the Rohingya communities. And But more recently, in 2016, our founder who's a visionary, obviously, who's created this ambitious project. We call it, for us, it's a human project. He went to the garment factories and decided he wanted to recruit. As you know, there are about 4,000 young women working in Bangladesh garment factories. And he thought there must be a handful every year who have the potential and the promise to undertake higher education. So he went to the factories and he persuaded them that um, if we do test these young women on a Friday afternoon and we find them qualified to come to AUW, then the factories will compensate, pay the families the wages. And uh, we had, it was a wonderful approach because we have, today we have over 100 students from the garment factories of Bangladesh. Similarly, last year, I think it was in 2018, he hit upon this idea of approaching young women from the madrasas Madrasas are religious schools which build a curriculum around the study of Islamic cultures and theology. And they often operate as seminaries and are isolated from the public school system. And um, traditionally only open to boys. But although they have now begun to enroll girls, there's so much more that they can do in terms of admitting, giving girls fuller access about a third of all Bangladeshi youth are still educated in the madrasa system. It's a very close system. And so we um, managed to recruit from the madrasa, which is a real breakthrough for the EW, that we managed to convince the families and, and the religious elders to send their daughters to a liberal arts institutions such as this. I mean, it would have been unimaginable a few years ago that they can send to such a far um, extreme institution. Uh, it's no ordinary feat in the context within which we are operating. And that's been a huge success. We don't have huge numbers, but they are growing. And so the student body itself is very diverse. Very diverse. We have, um, as I said, we have around 1,000 enrolled currently. And from 19 different countries, we have 35 ethnicities. Uh, we have around 26 languages spoken, and we have about five religions. Yes, all Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists alike. That is that is really wonderful. So the positive externalities, I think, that come out of the university aren't just the SDG 4 and SDG 5 with education and gender, but you also have, I would imagine you have a lot of individuals graduating from the university who 
after having had such exposure to diverse cultures, see their local communities and the, their lives in a, in a different light in terms of what's possible? Of course. And it's not always easy, I have to say, particularly those coming from very remote areas like the tribal communities or mm -hmm. the, um, the Chakmas and Garos of the hill tribes in Bangladesh or the Assam tri you know, um, uh, tribes from Assam and Nagaland. They, come, they are very, very remote. So it is, and even the refugee, young women from refugee communities, it's, it's not easy to go back to their own communities because they have been here with us for five years. Mm -hmm. And to return to that community, to make an impact, to make a transformation is a huge challenge for them. And um, they still do it. And mm -hmm. some of them have been extremely successful in setting up small enterprises and, um, and um, improving the lives of the local people. I'm looking forward to seeing what your what your alumni community is going to look like in a few years because it sounds like you, you you're going to have a wonderful alumni body. I know, I, absolutely. I mean, if it's um, even if it's not huge numbers, you know, I'd like to see the success in terms of what impact they're making. And um, all over, we have PhD students in um, in Scandinavian countries who are working on water treatment and. They want to go back to their countries like India and improve the quality of water and you know, in Bangladesh, sanitation, public health. These are big, big issues. And we have a huge, um, we have quite a large number of um, our alumni who um, graduated in public health programs and they're all over the world um, doing their masters and they want to come back. So it, you're right. We, we're already seeing the impact. It's phenomenal. Mm. And... Um, and um, what do you want to see for the university in the next 10 years? What uh, what would success look like? I mean, it seems like it's growing already very nicely. What what do you um, what do you think it'll look like in 10 years time? In 10 years, I mean, the first project we are just embarking is on constructing our campus. At the moment, we operate from a very small space, very, very small. And um, if you one way of looking at it is such a small space has produced such a diverse set of young women um, who've gone out to the world making an impact. But um, one of the things I'd like to see, we all would like to see, is a permanent campus, which is going to um, start soon. We're going to start construction. We've just got um, funding from the World Bank to mm -hmm. start the project. And... Uh, uh, it's a beautifully designed master plan designed by Moshe Safde, mm -hmm. uh, who is the Israeli architect, professor of architecture at Harvard. Um, it's going to be um, a, a distinct, <laughs> you know, a remarkable um, uh, campus, which will provide the transformation. It will be um, an experience for students and be, you know, which is going to be unparalleled, I think, in the region. So in a few years from now, we hope to extend our outreach. Um, we hope to get more students from faraway countries, not just Asian subcontinent, but from beyond. Um, I'd like to see success um, also in terms of the growth of programs. At the moment, we are just an undergraduate um, university, and we have um, ambitious plans to build schools of education, schools of architecture and planning, schools of environment, engineering, um, and so on. So 
we have plans. Um, we just need the campus to. Excellent. Excellent. Now you have ambitious plans. So it sounds great. And also <laughs> one thing you mentioned, which I don't know if everybody picked up, but touching or, or adding on the diversity topic, uh, the fact that the that the architect for your new campus is Israeli adds even more diversity to the picture, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, uh, yeah, I'm sure it will be a breathtaking. No, that's great. That's absolutely great. Tell us a little bit about your, your trajectory. You, you have a very distinguished uh, trajectory. Tell us a little bit about uh, where you were before and how you got to where you are today. Well, Albert, uh, Alberto, I was raised in a very traditional South Indian culture myself at a time when gender roles were unambiguously defined and limits were set on women's aspirations. Mm. Uh, but I was singularly fortunate in that I had the opportunity to study at top Indian universities and education that transformed my life considerably. And growing up in India really helped me develop my personality as well as my work ethic, I would say, which assisted me enormously to come to terms with my transition to the UK in the late 1980s. Um, I came here with a small child, uh, managed to get my first um, job with Runnymede Trust and very soon got an opportunity from the Roundtree Foundation. Um, I worked for them as a research fellow and, and they gave me um, a chance to register for my PhD and I got my doctorate, which um, enabled me to start my teaching career at Goldsmiths College, mm -hmm. where I was uh, for 14 years. But um, having invested in teaching and research, I soon got the opportunity to take on the role of Pro Warden, which is the second mm -hmm. um, in the administrative position in Goldsmiths, which I considerably enjoyed. And um, that led to my um, next job at um, the School of Oriental and African Studies, so mm -hmm. as, where I joined as its pro director. I was there for nearly a decade. And, um, and SOAS, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful school, SOAS, really outstanding. It, it, it's fantastic. My year, they were my golden years, both at Goldsmiths and SOAS, but particularly SOAS, because you had a huge, diverse mix of students from the Middle East and Asia and very much at home. Mm. But I joined SOAS in 2008. Um, in, in 2011, I was first approached by our founder, Mr. Kamal Ahmed who happened to visit London and he asked, reached out and he told me about the university and asked if I would go to Chittagong to go and have a look at it. And um, I immediately um, agreed. I went there, spent a few days. I met students, faculty and came away feeling it was a very special place, quite magical, quite extraordinary. Just the interaction between students and, and the faculty uh, was quite amazing. But I couldn't take it up at the point because I still had projects in SOAS. But when the opportunity arose in 2016, uh, the vacancy came up. I accepted the offer when I was approached again. And um, because I wanted to be part of this very bold, important initiative that was so successfully addressing some of the key issues of, um, as I said, quality, equity, access to higher education for women in the region. Mm. And this initiative gives me hope that they are solvable problems. So. Sure, sure. Wow, that's a great story all around. Tell us, before we wrap things up, what's the uh, key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? My own experience in the last four years with AUW has taught me something very important. 
-hmm. And that is background is not an indicator of potential. Mm. Um, Courage, hope, resilience, drive, empathy, these are qualities are of much greater value. And and most importantly, um, how talents, even in the most unimaginable settings, can be harnessed to great effect, which would eventually transform lives. Um, I believe every woman must be given the chance to succeed and become the agent of change that we so desperately need. And education is the key to success. Here, 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 here. You've been listening to Nirmala Rao, Vice Chancellor of Asian University for Women. To our listeners, as always, thank you so much for tuning in. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share this episode and the podcast widely with your friends and family and colleagues. And Nirmala, really wonderful. I, uh, I thank you very much for your time and your insight, and I wish you continued success. Thank you so much, Alberta. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.